In our last episode, which if you haven't listened to yet, you might want to stop now, go back, and listen to episode three now before you start this one, we discussed the many difficulties that Pierre Balmain faced as he planned for his very first couture presentation. All the odds that seemed stacked against him, and all the daring gambles that he took as he moved forward, designing and creating those very first Balmains. And finally, the absolute triumph of the house's very first Balmain presentation. Or as Pierre Balmain summed it all up several years later, the miracle. This episode and the two following podcasts will examine those who were part of that first Balmain moment. The friends and the professionals who were lucky enough to be seated inside that small showroom, as well as those who soon afterwards were to become the very first adapters and promoters of Pierre Balmain's fresh, new, feminine proposal for Parisian post-war fashion. In short, over the next few podcasts, we'll be focusing on the shared excitement experienced by those lucky enough to be part of that key moment in the house's earliest days, 75 years ago. And the collective emotion of that historic occasion helps to make very clear something that Balmain's present creative director, Olivier Rustong, has often stressed, that try as hard as we might, nobody in fashion has yet been able to dream up a substitute for the powerful shared experience of watching a live fashion runway. That may still surprise a few people. Rustang is still, after all, one of the forces behind fashion's growing adaptation of the latest digital tools. But he is also someone who continues to stress the unique richness and power of actual live presentations. And when he explained why recently, Rustang stressed some of the lessons that had been passed on to him by the house's founder. You know, digital may be a key tool today for fashion, but physically cannot be replaced and never will be replaced. Since I began at Barman, editors have been categorized me as one of the most fashion digital designers, let's say. And well, they were not totally wrong because, as everyone knows, I've been pretty quick adapter of all the latest uh, virtual tricks and tools, and I'm very comfortable communicating in the most direct ways with our Barman followers. And for me, it's much more than social media posting. I have always hoped that digital advancement might help us finally move luxury fashion toward a much-needed democratization. That's what we need. You know, we really, really do need to push upon the doors, even if it's only just the slightest bit. Letting everyone into those design, runway and backstage experience that for way too long have only been reserved for just a tiny, tiny group of connected and privileged insiders. And new tools can do that. But digital does obviously have its own limits. Um, you know, I believe that it usually functions best as complement, but never as replacement, of live fashion presentations. That's why my team and I have always insisted on actual, not virtual runways, whenever it is possible. And of course, we still offer the best digital alternative of those same shows for those who cannot make it to Paris Fashion Week to attend. We spend a lot, a lot of time planning and creating our shows because we are all convinced that there are some things, like fashion show, that are the best experience live. And we are also convinced that share live experiences are crucial for our fashion community. That's why, 
Throughout this pandemic, for this entire very, very long, long year, we have worked extremely hard to try to ensure that live bomb and fashion shows are shown in front of our friends and followers. For example, last July, we maintained the necessary safe social distancing as the house model floated through the beautiful center of Paris on the Peniche, which is a type of large flat boat that usually used to transport merchandise up and down the Seine River. And in September, we showed our Bauman men's and women collection outdoors at night in the center of the French capital historic Jardin des Plantes, a beautiful, so beautiful garden of the city's left bank. And all of those who cannot come to Paris because of the travel restriction were present with us anyway. My team set up dozens of gigantic screens in the setting area so fashion editors and friends would be able to virtually attend Paris Fashion Week at least for our show. Finally, just a couple months ago, we set up a unique photo studio inside the window of our Saint Honoré boutique. There, in front of the traffic and all the people walking by on one of the most beautiful Paris city streets. I shot our latest campaign. By doing this, we allowed all the Parisian passerby the chance to see our latest design. And the store's enormous glass window served as a sort of a, I would say, a clear mask, ensuring everybody's safety. But Finally, for this month's show, my team and I had to realize that we had no choice. We needed to compromise, at least temporarily, on our determination to present our barman creations live in front of an audience. With, with all the French borders closed and the strict restriction making a live show impossible, we realized that we needed to look to alternative ways to present the house's latest design. But we will. We will, of course, return to live shows with an audience as soon as possible. There is no question about that. If you want to understand why I'm so determined to have a live show experience, well, perhaps it will help if you think about the very first show of this house when Pierre Balmain presented his first collection 75 years ago here in Paris. Monsieur Balmain showed that first small collection in front of a select group of fashion professionals and friends. And when you think about it, it's clear that it must have been an amazing and exciting moment. His good friend Gerstrich Stein and Alice B. Toklas were seated right in the front row with their dog basket and next to their good friend Cecil Beaton. And the excitement that they all felt after seeing Balmain's new French style is obvious. That show pushed Beaton and Stein to collaborate on the legendary American's writer first and only fashion article. In fact, Gerstrund Stein seems to have been so in love with Barman's work that for the iconic series of photos that she took with the legendary photographer Horst a few months later, she wore a special Barman creation and insisted on having part of the Vogue shooting happen inside Barman News Showroom, with Stein seated in front of a towering Barman model. Cecil Beaton also clearly was amazed. He raved about the house first collection that night to his group of well-connected British and French friends, helping quickly spread Pierre's Barman name to the men and women who would guarantee the house success. And Beaton would immediately begin working with Barman. Barman used fabric that Beaton designed in his future collection and Beaton began shooting Barman creation for the leading magazines. And Beaton made sure that Barman was introduced to all of his society friends in London. Of all those present, I think it was Alice B. Toklas who best summed what they were all feeling that moment of Barman's first show. A few months after the show, she prepared a beautiful, beautiful small book with illustration by the legendary illustrator Gruot of Barman Creations. 
Toklas wrote that all of those seated at that very first barman show were the lucky witnesses of the birth of a feminine and fresh new French style. Hello, I'm John Gilligan. During last month's L'Atelier Balmain episode, I mentioned that the writer at the French magazine Femina cleverly summed up the first Balmain show by simply writing, Since that day, everyone is asking, have you seen Balmain? And for the next three L'Atelier Balmain podcasts, we'll be focusing on some of those people who are asking that question after the first Balmain show. With the help of some of fashion's leading writers and historians, we will be highlighting a bit of the incredible history of some of those legendary names that Olivier Rustong just mentioned. Gertrude Stein, Alice B. Toklas, Cecil Beaton, Horst, and René Grau. These are, of course, some of the most important names of 20th century art, fashion, and culture. And this house is understandably proud that each of them played a key role in the earliest days of Beaumont. Today, we're focusing on just one unique story. It's a story of devotion and friendship. It's the story of Alice, Gertrude, and Pierre. Together, we'll be exploring a bit of the rich artistic legacy and fascinating background of one of the 20th century's most interesting couples, Alice B. Toklas and Gertrude Stein, as well as the special relationship forged during the occupation's darkest days that the pair shared with Pierre Beaumont. I am Olivier Roustin. Welcome to my world. Welcome to my world. Bienvenue à l'atelier Balmain. Bienvenue à l'atelier Balmain. Greates amours, mon pays Paris. Okay, so let's go back to that very first Balmain couture presentation. Even before anyone could really pay attention to Pierre Balmain's beautiful creation and fresh new ideas, what first grabbed people's attention was a loud scuffle that broke out at the very beginning of the show. And it appeared that it was going to develop into the type of fiasco that is every runway planner's worst nightmare. Seated in the front row of that small Balmain showroom was a couple that had arrived to the show with their large white poodle. And unfortunately, Pierre Balmain had decided to have one of his models be accompanied by his own dog, an Airedale named Sandra. So then, of course, the inevitable happened. The two dogs decided to start a fight. Described as a furious battle in the designer's memoirs, that dogfight required Pierre Balmain and his models to stop the show and run out to pull the Airedale and the White Poodle apart, something that luckily ended up amusing the crowd and forcing Pierre Balmain to quickly get over his nervousness. In fact, he later wrote that the unexpected calamity actually helped to ensure that the show got off to a great start. Today, we really don't know all that much about Sandra. Pierre Bamon seems to have loved dogs, and Sandra was one of the many pets he had. But that large standard white poodle in the show's front row was actually a modern art icon. Named Basket, that dog was Alice B. Toklas and Gertrude Stein's very famous and very pampered pet and he accompanied the couple everywhere that they went. Actually, if I can be just a touch more precise, the basket that was involved in that Balmain dogfight seems to have been basket number two, the second of the couple's large white poodles, and there would eventually be a basket number three as well. 
So Alice B. Toklas and Gertrude Stein, as you probably already know, seem to have been friends with every single one of the early 20th century's greatest artists, which means that Basket was accustomed to being walked by celebrities, shot by all the leading magazines, and immortalized in portraits by legendary painters and photographers. For example, after his own dog got into a fight with Basket, Picasso apologized to Stein and Toklas by creating a small wool-and-wire poodle sculpture of Basket and striking black-and-white photographs of Basket shot by the American surrealist Man Ray are now a part of the permanent collection of the Pompidou Museum here in Paris. And Basket's companions on the day of the show? So Gertrude Stein and Alice B. Toklas, the two women who were seated in the front row of the house's first presentation, were two of Pierre Beaumont's earliest and most important supporters. The legendary couple had recently returned to a liberated Paris from the country home, where they had been living through the war, in a small town close to Aix-les-Bains, where Pierre Beaumont's mother, Françoise, ran one of her dress shops. If you've ever seen a movie or read a book about the amazing artistic fervor that set apart early 20th century Paris, well, you're probably already well aware of just who Stein and Toklas were. And by the time that Pierre Beaumont first met them, the couple was already world famous. Stein and Toklas were both expat Americans, and they had been living together on the, in their home on Paris's left bank since the beginning years of the 20th century. Stein was an extraordinary and charismatic character. She was an avant-garde writer and poet, and although much of her writing might be more than a little bit difficult for most of us to read and comprehend today, she is recognized as having been a literary pioneer. She's also celebrated for her decisive influence on English-language experimental theater and modern American literature. Gertrude Stein was an important champion of some of the greatest authors of the 20th century, including the leading writers of the so-called Lost Generation, which is a term that she herself coined. Stein forged close relationships with many American writers living in Paris, motivating, mentoring, and helping to kickstart the careers of Hemingway, Fitzgerald, Dos Passos, T.S. Eliot, Thornton Wilder, Ford Maddox Ford, Sherwood Anderson, and many others. Gertrude Stein also had an incredible eye. She had an incomparable talent for seeking out and championing the most talented of painters. The income that she received from her American family's investments wasn't enough to allow her to buy the popular Impressionist and Post-Impressionist paintings of the day. So Gertrude Stein, along with her brothers Leo and Michael, decided to instead concentrate on buying original works from the French capital's newest crop of young artists. And at that moment in this city, well, there were some pretty amazing unknown talents for them to discover. The Steins were among the first to recognize the power and genius of the radically new visions of artists like Picasso, Matisse, Greece, and Brock. And those eventually priceless and now iconic creations that they purchased from the then unknown, now legendary artists seemed to cover every spare inch of the walls inside Stein and Toklas' apartment. Just as incredible were the guests who flocked to the weekly salons held in that same space. Each Saturday evening, Stein and Toklas managed to assemble some of the greatest talents of the modern age, melding together avant-garde poets, composers, dancers, painters, and writers, along with the wealthy and curious who were just dying to get to know them. So, jam-packed with masterpieces and bursting with geniuses, 
Stein and Toklas' apartment on 27 Rue de Fleurus became one of the most important centers of the modern era's creative and intellectual life. And just as much as Stein loved discovering and championing new talents, those same young creators were drawn to her magnetic personality and power. That explains why Gertrude Stein was constantly being asked to pose for them. She was captured by at least 25 of that era's most important artists, including Man Ray, Picabia, Valentin, and most importantly, of course, there's Picasso's masterpiece, perhaps the most celebrated portrait of our modern age, which now hangs at New York's Metropolitan Museum. But what made Gertrude and Alice famous to everyday folks like us was the publication in 1933 of the autobiography of Alice B. Toklas. Okay, in spite of what the title may say, that book was entirely written by Gertrude Stein, who channeled Toklas's voice and point of view to drive the story that Stein wanted to tell. And it did exactly what the author knew it was destined to do. It became an enormous bestseller. It made the couple money and promoted Gertrude Stein, who was, to put it mildly, an incredible narcissist. That autobiography is actually Gertrude Stein's only accessible publication. Very different from a typical Stein work, the book has a sharp, witty, and gossipy feeling. It's a very easy read that focuses on the many fascinating relationships that a couple formed with the intellectual and artistic avant-garde talents. And it provides an inside look at the absolutely incredible period that they were living through. For almost 90 years, that autobiography has remained both popular and respected. In fact, the Modern Library's editors rank it as number 20 in their list of the top 100 nonfiction titles of the 20th century. Myra Kalman, the award-winning illustrator, author, and designer, recently oversaw the creation of an entirely new edition of that famous autobiography. Kalman, who's the, ed- who's the creator of several iconic New Yorker covers, is known for her masterful use of colorful paintings to complement compelling stories. Her distinctive illustrated stories have been the basis of New York Times online columns, as well as the more than 30 books that she has authored for both adults and children. For this new edition of the autobiography of Alice B. Toklas, Kalman has created 70-plus color illustrations based on Stein's texts, helping to give a surprising and welcome vivid infusion of color and content to the beloved 88-year-old classic. Myra Kalman recently agreed to call into our podcast to share her thoughts on the autobiography, on Alice, and on Gertrude. Hey Myra, how are you? Hey, thanks so much for calling in from New York today to join us on the podcast. So starting out, I'm thinking that anyone who is already familiar with your work probably has already noticed, like I have, your love for Gertrude and Alice. You've illustrated and mentioned them in several previous works, and you even designed the beautiful sets for the production of Four Saints and Three Acts, the opera that Gertrude Stein created with Virgil Thompson. So... Obviously, it's not a great surprise that you would select Gertrude Stein's most popular book for your most recent project. What is it about Gertrude and Alice that has drawn you to them and their work for all these years? When I met Gertrude and Alice, I fell in love. Maybe not as in love as Gertrude and Alice did with each other, but certainly I I felt an affinity and a kinship with them on many different levels. And the sense of experimentation and humor, courage, coupled with a life at home, really spoke to me that you could have a beautiful life together and food and friends 
with all the fights, of course, and falling out, fallings out. But that there was this combination of an incredible security and incredible ability to experiment. Of course, the experimentation came at a price, and the reason I chose this book is because it's the only one that you can actually read. So, Myra, Alice B. Toklas' autobiography is, of course, one of the most famous and successful autobiographies ever written. And for your new edition of this classic, I think it's interesting to see how you've been able to make your illustrations complement so very well the wit and the humor of Stein's fantastic narrative. And just to state the obvious, it just seems so very, very right to have your paintings included in a book about Toklas and Stein's life. Because after all, we're talking about a couple that played a decisive role in the history of modern art. So maybe your art was the thing that was always missing before, right? Am I wrong to say that it's almost like we're reading a new book, a book that comes from Gertrude and Alice and Myra as well? I do like to think that I've collaborated with them and that they would both be amused, I hope, I think, at my addition because I really love that era. I love Paris in the teens and 20s and 30s and, and they knew everyone on earth that was doing anything. It was really this incredibly heady time and their salon was a place that everybody came to. Of course, there were lots of fights and rivalries, but it's an extremely intoxicating time and there is a lot of photo reference for it. So I was able to plunge in and paint all, all of the people that I love so much from Matisse to Vuillard and Duchamp. So there are many, many references that are, that are wonderful to relate to and it puts you in a very open frame of mind. They really were reinventing the world. Myra, I love the page in the book when you write out this question in your really beautiful handwriting, who did they know? And then immediately you write out your answer in all caps below, everybody. And obviously that's what immediately strikes all of us when we read this book. It's incredible to note just who it was that was dropping by that famous left bank apartment. I mean, they really hosted so many of the modern ages very greatest talents and geniuses, and all of them were assembled together in that one small space. Your illustrations riff on so many iconic black and white photographs of these famous guests. And as I page through the book, my obvious question becomes, how did you narrow down your selection? With so many amazing people that are mentioned in this autobiography, what was your process of finding the photographs, deciding which photograph to interpret, and then selecting which of the talents to paint? That's always a question because I often want to paint three times as much as I do in a book and then there's editing. So I, the way that any photo editor does or any editor of anything, that you sift through it and you redefine it and look at it and keep looking at it until you say what's essential. And there's something nice about having to be, having to edit yourself and saying, as much as you can with the least possible space. And there are, I think there are something like 70 paintings in there. And as I said, of course, I could have done many more. But there is a discernment. And you say what's strong and what's wonderful and what isn't necessary. So it's just somebody else could have done, obviously, many different paintings. But there's at the end, at the end of the day, there is a certain number of pages that you are allotted. And 
that's what happens. It's a pretty, it's, it's not easy, it's not fast, but it's kind of straightforward, so that's okay. And I'm really following Gertrude's lead. And you know, the whole device of the autobiography was that everybody said it was really Gertrude writing about herself, and of course, she was. And in when I was reading the different editions and underlining how many, I noticed how many times she mentioned herself in the book, and it was something like six or seven hundred times that she uses the word Gertrude Stein coming out of the voice of Alice B. Toklas. So it's both phenomenally narcissistic, of course, as she was, and also very irreverent. Um, so unapologetic opinions. I like that at this time in life. You know, Myra, I think we've always considered Alice as being someone who was just kind of in the shadow of the genius of Gertrude, just cooking, typing, arranging the household, just basically in the background for the 40 years that the couple was together. But I love how you've made it clear that there's no Gertrude without Alice. Next to one of your pictures of the couple, you write, don't be deceived by Alice, always in the background. And then we turn the page and we read, nothing would have happened without Alice, nothing. It could be that Alice did write this book. It could be. Who holds the pen? Who has the ideas? Now that we are looking at history with a different lens of who the women were behind the powers, it's usually the woman behind the man. But now we're looking at the woman behind the woman, which adds another level of interest to it. And when you read, the biggest clue is reading Alice's work after Gertrude died. They were together for 40 years. They never spent a night apart. Their lives were so intertwined, and the the le the level of conversation, of course, was, was never ended. So when you read Alice's books, her cookbooks, and her memoir after, you see that voice very clearly. This eccentric, sharp, uh, biting observations that are very critical sometimes and very unapologetic. It's all there in her voice. So of course. She would never, as she says, she would never have sat down to do it in the way that that Gertrude did. And it was really a combination of their voices. But Gertrude would never have written a book. And she decided to write a book that was popular after having so many inaccessible pieces of work that were interesting in and of themselves. But as I said earlier, unreadable in many ways. So Gertrude, no, Gertrude knew how to do it, how to be on the outside, but the two of them were together on the story on the inside. So Myra, ever since this autobiography was first published in 1933, I think people read this book to try to capture the magic of this incredible singular moment of early 20th century Paris, and of course to marvel at all those famous names. But then after we finish, well, I think most of us realize that what we've actually read is a love story. And you write next to one of your paintings of the couple, this is a love story. You know how two people join together, become themselves. They cannot breathe right without each other. It comes from a very personal place because I was married, I was with the man for 30 years and married him and we had children, who was an extremely powerful 
designer and thinker and his stance was very much in the world and I was very much behind the scenes but we both knew that we relied on each other's intellect and curiosity and just take on the world immensely there were there would have been his name was Tibor Kalman and there would have been I, I, it's clear to me that neither of us would have done anything that we did without the other and I always said that uh, I couldn't breathe right without him and I used that for Gertrude and Alice because it was clear that that's how their relationship was too. Of course with ups and downs and all of the things that happens in relationships but that basically you find somebody in this world who is your mate in the most real and important way and it's inexplicable in some ways. You can't say, oh this is the kind of person I should be looking for, it's just, it happens. And if you're fortunate enough to have that happen, uh, it's an extraordinary gift. So I think that they recognize, I know that they recognize that in each other, and there was no question how important they were to each other. And then beyond all the names and beyond the moment that they were living in, we also marvel about all those incredible priceless works of art that were hanging on the walls. And, of course, I'm far from the first to say that Gertrude and Alice's Salon could really be seen as the world's first modern art museum. So you went to Paris and you had the great luck to be able to actually visit their famous apartment on 27 Rue de Fleurus on the left bank. And in your new edition of this autobiography, you've really captured the look of that one-of-a-kind interior during the time of Alice and Gertrude. What did you feel when you walked into that space? It's really wonderful for me. When I work on a project, I really like to go and travel and be in the places that relate to the story. And I, whatever serendipity happens, whatever cafe I might walk past or some interesting person with a wonderful hat and a, and a dog, and somehow those things enter into the feeling, if not always literally into the paintings. Because in this, in this situation, I had to be more literal. But... I adored walking into their apartment and you know it's very unassuming it's a teeny little place there's no grand room at all and all the rooms are the same as they were in terms of the architecture of course everything has changed in terms of the furniture but every room is kind of small and unassuming so you think of all of these paintings and people crowded into these little rooms with all of the heady conversation going on and the parties and the food and the eating and the Matisse sat here and Picasso sat there, but it's completely plain and nothing grand about it, which is so wonderful that you say it's really what you put into a place. It doesn't matter at all how grand the exterior is. So they were able to create this music, this gallery, this uh, in their modest home. And I also went to visit their house in the south of France, where they were for about 15 years. That, well, that was a beautiful chateau. I, I, that wasn't so modest, I have to say, but it wasn't an art place. It was their place for gardening and for friends coming to visit in an expansive kind of gracious hospitality that they were able to offer people. And then, of course, during, through the war and all of the questionable, the questionable circumstances of that. So I'm, it gives me a kind of glow of happiness to inhabit these spaces and feel that I'm connected to them, that I belong there, that I, when I had 
lemon pound cake and coffee at the Rue de Fleurus. It was really a nice thing. It was meant to be. Ce qui as Myra mentions, Alice and Gertrude spent the war years far from Paris at their beautiful country estate. They'd been spending time in the region ever since the summer of 1924 when, while driving from Paris in the Model T on the way to visit Picasso in the French Riviera, they decided to just cut their journey short and stay in that beautiful area instead. And in the decades that followed, they established a country home there, and over the years they entertained their many vacationing Parisian friends and artists. So, since this podcast is aiming for a truthful presentation of every aspect of the histories that we present, I do feel obligated to highlight one point here, and we will include more information about this on our podcast webpage. It was while she was living in the countryside during the long Nazi occupation of France at Stein, like so many others at that time, made what Myra was alluding to a few minutes earlier when she mentioned questionable decisions. So obviously this was a dangerous time, and the circumstances that the couple found themselves in were very far from secure and safe. They were, after all, a lesbian, Jewish, and American couple living in rural France during the very darkest days of Vichy and the Nazi occupation. And of course, many people during that time did feel compelled to make compromises in order to hope for protection, and often just to survive. For many, it's surprising to realize that in spite of her bohemian attitudes, avant-garde taste, and her present status as a feminist icon, Gertrude's science politics were, well, far from progressive. She didn't really like Franklin Roosevelt, And in the years before the war, she displayed what we could call most charitably today a startling naivete in regard to the dangers of Hitler and of fascism. Janet Malcolm, the great New Yorker writer, investigated how the couple managed to make it through the war for her book, Two Lives, which was published in 2007. Malcolm showed how Stein turned to Bernard Fay, who was a longtime friend that she had first met in 1924 for support and for protection. Faye had been appointed the head of the Bibliothèque Nationale here in Paris during the occupation. He was a vile man who seems to have done many vile things. And after the war, he was convicted and sentenced to hard labor for his collaboration with the Nazis. So Sine relied on her long friendship with him and on Faye's wartime power and influence in order to keep herself, Alice, and that famous art collection safe from the Nazis. In addition, like so many others at the time, Stein seemed to be almost willingly blind to the dangers of Hitler's French ally, Marshal Pétain. So Faye pushed Pétain's Vichy government to keep Stein and Toklas safe, and in return, he pushed Stein to translate Pétain's speeches into English. And she actually seems to propose those translations to American publications who, understandably, were not all that interested. There's nothing that indicates that the young Pierre Beaumont knew anything about Stein's questionable choices and compromises during his lifetime. In fact, few seem to have been aware of the stain on Stein's legacy before Malcolm wrote her first New Yorker investigation about it in 2006. Stein and Toklas's country home was not far from Aix-le-Bain, where Pierre Beaumont's mother had one of her dress shops. During the occupation, whenever he was home visiting his mother in Savoy, Balmain would make the long bike ride out to meet Alice and Gertrude, bringing them needed supplies from Paris, 
as well as the special wool outfits and coats that they had asked him to create for them. Piedmont's total dedication to the couple can be seen in the clothing that he created for them during the occupation. He'd first bicycle out to their estate with his cutter to measure and to fit the couple's new creations. Later, he'd bike out again to deliver the final designs. He was actually stopped once by the authorities, who saw that he was loaded down with enormous packages and suspected him of trafficking in black market goods. Since Alice and Gertrude stressed that they needed warm and comfortable clothes that reflected their personalities as much as their country lifestyle, Balmain crafted tweed suits and dresses that, while making clear his expert skills, were actually nothing like the couture collections that he was designing in Paris at the same time. As Balmain explains in his memoirs, generally these were only voluminous skirts that came down to the ankle with matching jackets, but the buttons were of embossed silver and the linings in taffeta. Gertrude always ordered deep pockets into which she would plunge her arms up to the elbows in order to withdraw the paraphernalia of her everyday lives. Both of them wore with distinction the clothes that would have seemed ridiculous on anyone else. Many of the letters, notes, and postcards that Pierre Beaumont would send to the two women are now part of the Stein Collection, which is housed at Yale University. These letters make clear the strong friendship that was developed between them during the long years of the occupation while Pierre Beaumont was visiting and creating those wardrobes. For example, one note pulled from the Yale archives dated November 1941 accompanies a bill for the recent delivery of Pierre Beaumont's designs. Chers amis, My dear friends, so now comes the painful billing moment. Could I ask you to please not talk about prices with Madame Janin? She is paying a much higher price than you for her outfits because you ordered a little bit earlier when material was less expensive. And of course, there is the fact that you are friends. Later, when he sent them the invitation for his first presentation, Pierre Beaumont was obviously thrilled to know that he would have this powerful literary and intellectual couple seated in his front row. Both the invitation to the couple and the accompanying note that Beaumont wrote on his house's new stationery are also found within the Yale collection of the couple's papers. It's interesting to note that Pierre Beaumont scribbled the house's brand new phone number across the top of the stationery, ELY 6483, ELY 6483. That number from the time of telephone exchanges reflected the fact that Balmain was located in the prestigious neighborhood next to the Champs-Élysées. The first three letters of a phone numbers at that time reflected a neighborhood. And it was eventually become the name of the house's first perfume, as well as the name of the house's newest accessory collection, Ely. Ma chère Gertrude, ma chère Gertrude I'm sending you an invitation for the first presentation of my first collection. I'm very much counting on you. All the American and French press will be there, and some French personalities as well. And there will be photographers, and it would make me so proud if the American press would publish pictures of you attending the inauguration of a young couture house. I think Vogue and Harper's Bazaar would both be interested in the article that you so kindly proposed to me. As for me, I'm no longer sleeping. I am already incredibly nervous, but I do have a lot of confidence in my destiny. I'm certain that I will make a success of this house. Because, as you know, my good friend, in general, as Savoyard, we tend to succeed in life. Do you know any American journalists or photographers that I need to make sure to invite so that they'll cover my house and liberated France's young couturier? All my best to you and Alice. 
Pierre. Pierre. In another note, written in English, from that same period of time, Pierre wrote to Gertrude to let her know that he was thrilled to see that the couple had worn the clothing that he had created for them for a shooting that was published in Life magazine. Life at that time was perhaps the world's most important magazine. It employed the globe's most important photographer and was delivered each week to over 10% of the American population. So Balmain was understandably excited and proud to see that story. And naturally, for the first Balmain presentation, Gertrude and Alice arrived wearing some of the special designs that Pierre had created for them. Gertrude wore a tailored suit and Alice a dress. But Alice was aware that their unique bohemian style didn't come close to matching the glamorous couture image that Balmain was hoping to present to the fashion press that day. So, as she later explained in an Atlantic magazine article, she warned Gertrude to not let anyone know that they were wearing Balmain's. But in spite of that warning from Alice, when Gertrude Stein wrote a review of that first Balmain show for the December 1st, 1945 issue of Vogue magazine, which was the only fashion review that she ever wrote during her lifetime, she made it very clear just how proud she was to be wearing a Balmain creation that day. That two-page Vogue spread definitely piled praise upon Balmain, explaining that his extraordinary success was the news of Paris couture this season, and describing his style as one of the freshness and excellent taste. But more than anything, it seems that Stein wanted to make very clear to Vogue's readers that she had a long and special history with fashion's newest star. In her essay, entitled Pierre Valmont, New Grand Succès of the Paris Couture, Remembered from Darker Days, Stein relies on the tool of literary repetition, repeating the phrase dark days throughout the article in order to underline the fact that she had first met Balmain during the all-too-recent difficult years of the occupation. Stein writes that she had first heard about Pierre Balmain from his mother in 1939, immediately after the Nazi invasion, when he and his Alpine Defense Regiment were stationed in the snowy peaks high above them. She describes Balmain's subsequent welcome visits as nice days during those dark days, explaining how Balmain would make long bicycle trips even during the depths of winter, in order to deliver both warm clothing and a breath of our dear Paris to the couple. Of course, they were constantly worried about him, knowing that he had to keep moving, just to avoid being sent away to serve as forced labor in Germany. And her great joy in seeing his post-liberation accomplishments is made very clear in a very Gertrude Stein, punctuation-free phrase. Then there was the liberation, and then in Paris, here we all were, and Pierre just full of what he was going to do, and we were sure he would do it, and he has. Her great pride in being among the first to recognize Pierre Beaumont's talent is very evident in the short text. In the article's final line, Stein, who is the legend who discovered Picasso and mentored the lost generation's greatest talents, seems thrilled to present her latest fashion revelation to the public. I suppose, there at the opening, we were the only ones who had been clothed in all these long years in Pierre Balmain's clothes. We were proud of it. It is nice to know the young man when he is just a young man and nobody knows. And now I guess very soon, anybody will know. And we were so pleased and proud. Yes, we were. Okay, so all in all, not a really bad way to start a career. Few, if any new young designers, just after their very first presentation, has ever received a review quite like that, 
authored by an intellectual and literary legend in the leading fashion magazine. And Balmain definitely recognized the power of all his positive critical reviews and the strength of Stein's high praise. As he later wrote in his memoirs, a couture house seldom escapes from the category in which it is initially placed. And Gertrude Stein's 1945 essay in Vogue definitely helped to immediately place Balmain in the highest of Parisian ranks. Stein's pride in Pierre Balmain's accomplishments was, of course, shared by Alice B. Toklas. Stein explains in another one of those incredible run-on sentences that Alice Toklas insists that one of her suits was as wonderful as any who was showing at his opening, and there was no reason why not. After all, didn't he design it, and didn't he come over on his bicycle to oversee, and was it not, as it all just is in dark days? There are high spots. A few days later, in the summer of 1946, Alice Toklas published her own take on Pierre Balmain's initial collection. Her short essay was entitled, A New French Style, and some suspect that, just like Toklas's autobiography, it may have actually been written by Stein using Alice's voice. The text praises Balmain's first collection, writing that it provided a fresh and very needed post-war rebirth for Parisian fashion. The first Balmain show is described by Toklas as a moment when suddenly there was an awakening to a new understanding of what mode really was, the embellishment and intensification of woman's form and charm. A dress was no longer to serve as a more or less decorated usefulness, but to once again become a thing of beauty, to express elegance and grace and delicacy in silk and wool, in lace, feathers, and flowers. The short essay ended with the declaration that Balmain's entirely modern conception is indeed the renaissance of Parisian elegance and has happily come to us as a new expression of the beauty, the grace, and the distinction that has always been France. To reflect the refined elegance that is stressed throughout the essay, a new French style was published as a limited edition art piece with only 1,000 numbered copies printed each relying on thick, rich paper. The beauty of the expert typesetting was matched by the pamphlet's drawings created by René Grau, the legendary fashion illustrator. Grau illustrated eight moments in the new Balmain woman's very active, very cultured life, including days at the Longchamp course races and nights that were spent dancing, dining, or heading off to the opera or the ballet. Gourault's beautiful black-and-white drawings captured Balmain's new, elongated, soft-shouldered, and cinch-waist feminine silhouette, while making very clear the house's reliance on expert couture tailoring and skilled embellishments. So, after the incredible success of his first show, both Toklas and Stein urged Pierre Balmain to travel to their homeland, America. They envisioned him as being a sort of compelling new voice of France's culture and style, with Stein making clear that he should not go to America as a businessman, but instead he should aim to travel widely, always filling the role of as an ambassador of French civilization and Paris couture. Pierre Beaumont discussed this directive from Stein several years later, in 1976, when speaking as a part of a conference organized by the French newspaper Le Figaro. My friend Gertrude Stein told me, don't go to America as just some sort of dress salesman. Go as an ambassador of French style, as the ambassador of the French lifestyle. And oh my God, I've done everything to make that happen. 
That directive meant I had to be prepared to speak about our greatest writers, our greatest artists, our palaces, our kings, and eventually move on through that conversation to the silhouettes of elegant women. But I was never to dwell on the fact that I was a courtier, and above all, I never spoke about gowns. Toklas expanded on the couple's thinking in an essay that she wrote for The Atlantic, stressing that since she knew that many Americans were very interested in knowing more about couture, she believed that a French promotion that mixed couture and culture could aid in the fostering of international peace and understanding. Because, as she summed up in her essay's last line, has anyone ever heard of an American, or for that matter, any woman, being interested in German or Russian haute couture? And Pierre Beaumont took up the challenge. Just as Gertrude Stein directed him to do, he traveled extensively. He ventured past the American cities on the coast in order to crisscross the country on weeks-long trips. He delivered lectures on French heritage and culture at both small rural colleges and at important conferences held in major cities. When booked to add his thoughts on subjects of the day like world peace at impressive forums alongside great American thinkers of the day like Adlai Stevenson and Dwight Eisenhower, Bauman showed that he knew how to engage the crowds. For example, at a speech sponsored by the New York Herald Tribune, he spoke for 15 minutes and then ended his presentation as three Balmain models dressed in blue, white, and red evening gowns walked out on stage while the pianist played the Marseillaise. And just as he knew it would, it was that final bang that brought the crowd of 2000 to its feet. Pierre Valmont seems to very much enjoy those long speaking tours. On one particularly long trip, he invited his mother along for what was her first trip to the States. Their itinerary was impressive, with stops, meetings, and speeches planned for New York, Boston, Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, Atlanta, Washington, and Wilmington, before the two headed to Florida to spend their final few days in Miami. Francoise Valmont liked her independence, although her English was not that great. So since they were staying on the penthouse in the sixth floor, Balmain instructed her to simply say six, please, to the elevator staff. On their last Miami evening, after a long presentation and dinner with local celebrities and French performers, he and his mother made their way to the penthouse. And he noticed how hard it was for the young elevator operator to keep from laughing as his mother very politely told him, sex, please, as they entered the elevator. When he explained later to his mother what had happened, he notes that her dignity was completely shot. In 1946, Gertrude Stein died. Another document from the Yale collection, a note that Pierre Beaumont wrote to Toklas to express his sadness and convey his condolences, makes very clear just how important the couple was for him. Paris, le 22 octobre 1946. Dear Alice, I don't even want to let another hour pass 
since I listened to the last hours given for Gertrude, without letting you know how much I share your grief and that I realize the immense loss that her disappearance causes us. I first met her on a summer afternoon in Savoy, and it was on a winter morning that witnessed our final meeting, and I still hear, with such pain, her voice on the phone when I spoke to her the day before your departure for the country. Pierre, Faith is Pierre, she was saying, because I had spent 15 days without going to see you. I will not be unfaithful to her memory, and I will never forget all that she did for me at the start of my career. Nor will I forget that you are still here, you, my other American mother, who also helped me so much, and who can still be so much for me. Her words are so weak and always seems so fabricated and insincere. Now it is only our pain that matters, and it is immense. Elle est immense. Je vous embrasse. Pierre. And just as he promised in the letter, Bauman remained very close to Alice B. Toklas for her 21 years of widowhood. He always reserved a front row seat for her at each Bauman presentation, and he invited her to accompany him when in January 1962 he was awarded the French Legion of Honor Medal. When Toklas published her best-selling cookbook, yes, that famous one that so scandalized readers in 1954 due to its inclusion of a recipe for hash brownies, Pierre Beaumont's recipe for a summer salad was included. That salad, called Vent Vert, named for one of the house's first perfumes, relied on celery, green peppers, walnuts, and cheese from, of course, Savoy. And to compliment her friend's salad, Toklas dreamt up a new chicken recipe, which she called Chicken Vent Vert. Alice Toklas lived until 1967, when she died at age 89. Today, Toklas and Stein are back together. They are buried in Paris' most famous cemetery, Père Lachaise, with their names and dates appearing on opposite sides of the same shared tombstone. So the Gertrude, Alice, and Pierre friendship was of course formed by the most unlikely trio of good friends. As we've seen, Gertrude Stein, the ultimate arbitrator of art and of literature, chose Pierre Beaumont to be her first and only fashion discovery. And she was eager to let the rest of the world know that she had been among the earliest to recognize the young designer as a singular talent. From their dark days together, when Pierre would bike out to meet them, through Gertrude's impressive support and encouragement, and then Pierre's agreement to follow their directive to travel and lecture in the States, and finally, during the long relationship that Alice maintained with the house during her many years alone, it's one of the unique and compelling stories that helped set this historic house apart. For our next episode, we will return once again to the same front row of Balmain's first show 75 years ago. For that podcast, we'll concentrate on the friend that accompanied Alice and Gertrude to that presentation, their old friend Cecil, Cecil Beaton. And we'll see how, from the moment he saw his first Balmain collection, Beaton played a decisive role in the history of the house, 
a role which we will examine in detail in our next L'Atelier Beaumont episode. Paris 